Hello, and thank you for listening to The Katie Helper Show. I just wanted to let you know up front that due to some technical difficulties, which were beyond our control at the time of the recording, my audio recording as well as the audio recording of guest Chip Gibbons is a little wonky. Thank you all for understanding that these things happen occasionally and that we've done our best to mitigate it as much as possible after the fact. And it took some time to mitigate this, which is why we are releasing this episode a week after it, but do not you worry. It's as relevant as it was when we recorded. The only updates are that the Espionage Act reform amendment put forward by Rashida Tlaib did not pass, which we already knew it wouldn't pass. And the other update is that since doing this interview, Matthew Ho's campaign filed a lawsuit in federal court against the North Carolina State Board of Elections. They expect to have a judge's ruling sometime in early August that will ensure their spot on the ballot in November. And stand by for an excellent Patreon-only interview with Mark Ames about Ukraine. You can find that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. We have a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking to Matt Poe, who is running for Senate in North Carolina. He's going to be talking to us about all these hijinks that the Democrats are up to, not surprisingly, in order to try to keep him from being on the ballot as a Green Party candidate. We're also going to be talking to Chip Gibbons about Julian Assange. Let's see. I'm not where I usually record, so I I take all of your suggestions about sound to heart. You should see Brad's face when he saw me in this. People, when I did my Monday morning stream for Useful Idiots, asked whether I was in an outhouse or a sauna. I'm in neither. I'm in a Zoom hut at a, at a place that is not, it's not designed for sound. Anyway, you guys are part of this, this, this moment. It's a historic moment. I feel like I'm on a reality TV show. And who better to join me on this reality TV show to walk with me hand in hand as we react to some amazing clips from our corporate media? Who better to do that with than Leslie Lee? Hey, who better? Who better? Who better? Who who better blues? You've heard of more better (laughs) blues? Well, there's who better blues also, except it's the opposite of blues. And Leslie is, of course, the host of his own show on calling called Culture and also the host with Jack Allison of Struggle Session. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me back, Katie. You can check us out, of course, at sesh.plus or patreon.com slash struggle session or strugglesession.substack.com. You got a lot of welcome backs, a lot of yays. Very excited. So let's see. I wanted to start off. We're going to talk more about Joe Biden and abortion. And I wanted to actually, before we jumped into it, you know, he did do some good things. He did sign an executive order that is making it easier for women to obtain medical abortions, protecting access to medication abortion, ensuring emergency medical care, which will take steps to ensure all patients, including pregnant women and those experiencing pregnancy loss, 
have access to the full rights and protections for emergency medical care afforded under the law, including considering updates to current guidance that clarify physician responsibilities and protections under the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. It's got, they're going to really try to protect access to contraception. Health and Human Services will take additional actions to expand access to the full range of reproductive health services, including family planning services and providers, such as access to emergency contraception and IUDs. Also, they're doing some outreach and public education. They're convening volunteer lawyers. That'll be good. Lawyers are going to be good. But it does beg the question why he announced these things on July 8th, as opposed to coming out swinging from the gate, from the get-go. It's not like they didn't know this; these things were happening. Yeah, they, and like, they, I mean, we knew it was leaked months ahead of the time. People were getting mad. They, like, let it fester, too. They let it fester to the point where I think a lot of people had just like, well, screw it. I guess that's just done because the Democrats didn't seem like they were going to do anything but ask for money for it. So it obviously it's way, way, way too little, way, way, way too late. But I guess the question you're asking is why wait until the very last minute? Why wait until it gets this bad? Why wait until Joe Biden's poll numbers are, I think, the lowest of any president uh, ever since they've started polling? Um, I, I don't know. I can't fathom it other than I, you just have to accept the fact that they would rather lose. Maybe Joe Biden is just anti-abortion personally this much. It's interesting that you raise that because let's take a look at this. If we could just throw this graphic up there. Here's Joe Biden's record of opposing abortion. 1974, he says, I don't like the Supreme Court decision on abortion. I don't think that a woman has the sole right to say what should happen to her body. Wow. Saying the pie part out loud, Joe. In 82, he votes to allow states to overturn Roe v. Wade. In 88, he repeatedly votes against inclusion of exceptions of rape and incest in the Hyde Amendment. In 92, he voices opposition for litmus tests on abortion for Supreme Court justices. First, he'd help Clarence Thomas get on the court. In 94, he brags. Imagine Joe Biden bragging about something. He brags he voted against federal funding of abortion on no less than 50 occasions. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Right. 2003, Joe Biden votes for a bill that would overturn Roe v. Wade by criminalizing the most common procedures used after the first trimester. And as recently as 2006, he said, I do not view abortion as a choice and a right. So, yeah, I think that maybe that explains their pace, their lack of initiative. Yeah, he's not fighting for abortion because he is anti-abortion. And everybody knew it when they elected him, when he was nominated, when when Barack Obama chose him to be uh, his running mate, because I, I remember, I remember that um, that I voted no fifty times clip, like being like a commercial in like a primary that Biden was in, like another Democrat was knocking him for being so anti-abortion. But all of this kind of got memory hold uh, somehow in the past uh, few years. Let's look at a clip from State of the Union, which is hosted by Jake Tapper on CNN. I wanted to to take a look at this clip, and we're going to hear from uh, someone named Scott Jennings, who is a CNN guy, a PR guy. He worked for the Bush 43 White House. So let's take a look at what he had to say about AOC's comments about Joe Biden. What I find fascinating, though, is the fighting among the Democrats. Biden wants people to vote, and that's how you would, you know, affect change on this, by passing laws. And then you have the clip you showed of AOC saying that's not enough. That's not enough. Voting won't save us or, or whatever it is she said. I, I find it amazing that you have you said elections are not enough. Elections alone are not going to save elections us. Elections are not enough. What does she want the president to do? 
completely disregard an institution of our government, completely you know, go outside the norms of our democracy. I was under the impression that Democrats wanted norms and wanted strong institutions. She's calling for the complete disregarding of an institution here, the United States Supreme Court. Let's be careful when we ask the president to do more in terms of executive orders. What one president writes in pen, another president can erase. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I want to. Wow. <laughs> what a brilliant insight. Thank you so much for that. That woman who said that is Mia Love, a former Utah congresswoman. She's a Republican. And I thought she was going to be like, be careful with, with the executive orders because they stay. What run president writes can't be undone by the next. It's like, you just made the best argument for just going full balls to the wall on executive orders. Yes. Like you made AOC's argument for her while pretending or thinking that you were arguing against her. That is wild. That's a wild clip. Isn't that so weird? Is CNN not doing okay? It doesn't seem no, like they have their best. I think ever best... since CNN Plus tanked, I think oh, they haven't gotten over it. Yeah. They had to make some cuts, probably bring in some, you know, the C team now. Yeah, the C team, yeah. But also, like, when he said, I thought Democrats respected norms. I was like, well, no wonder, because they do. They're kind of obsessed with norms. And it's a problem. So, yeah, they should disregard the norms. Yeah, they should disregard this corrupt, non-democratic institution that is the Supreme Court that we all know is incredibly political. Yeah. <laughs> like, And who is, like, respecting the Supreme Court now? I mean, we know. I mean, literally, we're talking about, like, religious zealots who have decided because of their bizarre like ingrained beliefs that like abortion needs to be outlawed and they've been and this is like there has been their plan because they're all part of uh, the federalist society so they've like since like in college like this has been their dream to turn us into the a little bit closer to the handmaid's tale because of their religious belief like why would you respect that institution that institution means like nothing. Like if, you know, six of the Supreme Court justices were Scientologists and they outlawed psychiatry, we wouldn't be like, oh, we need to respect the norms of the courts. We'd be like, oh, holy shit. Scientologists took over the Supreme Court. We got to do something about it. Well said. All right. So that's State of the Union. Let's go over to MSNBC. Let's watch some Morning Joe. we got a lot to talk about here. Uh, meanwhile, the White House is defending the president's response to the Supreme Court ruling on abortion from progressives who say he hasn't done enough. White House Communications Director Kate Benningfield told The Washington Post, quote, Joe Biden's goal in responding to Dobbs is not sat to satisfy some activists who have been consistently out of step with the mainstream of the Democratic Party. It's to deliver help to women who are in danger and assemble a broad-based coalition to defend a woman's right to choose. Okay, first of all, they're saying in a very condescending way, because they like to shit on their base, Joe Biden's goal in responding to Dobbs is not to satisfy some activists who have been consistently out of step with the mainstream of the Democratic Party. It's to deliver help to women who are in danger and assemble a broad-based coalition to defend a woman's right to choose. What do they think the activists who are out of step are calling for? Yeah, that's why I'm wondering, like, what, what, what is that, like, the loony left of, like, abortion rights? I don't think there, I didn't think there was such a thing. And in fact, I, I feel like most people who are talking about abortion have been cowled into the Hillary Clinton version 
of you know uh, safe and legal and rare. So I don't know where like where this groundswell of Activision came from. I mean, people let o- Obama off the hook, even though he promised to codify Roe v. Wade into law when he was elected. So if anything, people were very soft about this, and that's why uh, they got caught slipping. It's just so disdainful. Oh yeah, he's like blaming the people who are, who are desperate, who are struggling, who have been, you know, warning about this. And it's absolutely and it's all is you don't have to blame the base all the time to respond to your failures. You can respond in other ways. Joe Biden has a lot of experience responding to various failures he's had, but it's like just you have to do a little bit of hippie punching even if the hippies don't even exist. I know. And I don't know why he feels so constrained because like, he's such a liar. He lies with such impunity. He could just make something up. No one would care. All right, let's keep watching. Help to women who are in danger and assemble a broad-based coalition to defend a woman's right to choose. A senior staffer from the 2020 Biden-Harris campaign said she and other activists are offended by that statement. These people going into the street saying that we need a bodily autonomy, that is the excitement that Democrats need right now ahead of the midterms. And to demonize them and say, you know, they're not mainstream. Well, abortion is a very popular issue in the country, and it goes across Democratic and Republican lines. I think it was an unforced error, and I hope they address it. I'm not sure they will, but it, I took it offense to it, and a lot of people have. So I'm trying to understand what exactly, uh, what, what can he be doing right now that he's not doing, Joe? Well, that's what the White House is, is saying in that statement. Yeah. And, and by, by the way, I'm, I'm sure a lot of thought went into that statement because Jonathan Lemire, as you know, there has been for quite some time uh, there. You've had uh, the progressive uh, left in the Democratic Party. And let's just say it right here. The progressive left who hated him in the primaries, the progressive left who cheered his losses in Iowa, the progressive left who cheered his losses in New Hampshire, the progressive left said he was too old, uh, he was too moderate, there was no way he could win. The progressive left that was shocked when he won big in South Carolina, when he won big across the South, when he won big and ended up sweeping uh, his way to victory in the Democratic primaries. So there has been in Washington, I, I, can't, I can't speak for all over the country, but in Washington, there has been the question, why did Joe Biden run as a moderate and then get to Washington, D.C., and worry so much about what the most progressive elements of the party were saying? And I think the White House finally just had enough saying, oh, OK, you're going to keep criticizing us about everything. Well, listen, we're going to do what we can do, but stop acting like. I can just wave a magic wand and suddenly make Roe v. Uh, Roe v. Wade the law of the land again. There's that, and you've reported on it an awful lot. Talk about that tension uh, between moderate Democrats, uh, between the most progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and how this statement played out and why the White House finally just had enough. Mm. Yeah, the progressive left long time, as you just outlined, not enamored with Joe Biden, but when Biden was elected and they saw this as an opportunity to do big things in his agenda, they, White House aides were pretty blunt about it. They wanted to be FDR, they wanted to be LBJ, and that meant adopting some of these progressive platforms. And not all of them came to be, as we know, part of the president's legislative agenda uh, fell on the rocks, uh, crashed against the rocks last winter. Uh, but there's been a real source of tension here. The White House 
repeatedly has tried to reach out to the progressives. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, in particular, is the emissary from the West Wing to the Progressive Caucus. And I think there's been a growing sense of frustration in the White House. The aides that I've talked to confirm this, that they have been growing, they have been really almost fed up with some of the demands from the left. Like, of course, they understand them on some issues, on other things, far less so. And I think that statement this weekend was a bit of a tell, a tell from the White House saying, look, we're doing what we can on abortion. We're doing what we can on guns, on voting rights. So here again, the question that is coming from Morning Joe and Mika is, why are these progressives being so annoying? Why are they asking for so much? And why is Joe Biden, why does Joe Biden care? Joe Biden's mistake is that he cares too much about what they think. I was so confused by that because it didn't even mention, like, what is this, what are these concessions that he's made to the quote-unquote progressive left that has been bullying him? What did he do? They even said at one point that the issue they had was that the demands the left were making were too much. Not that they had given in to the demands, just that they were sick of hearing the demands, which I don't know what to say. And nobody on that panel can name any sort of material gains that people on the progressive left have gotten from Joe Biden. They're just like annoyed that they're not all on board with whatever agenda Biden has going on. It's bizarre. There's no content to what they're talking about, just like in some sort of ideal realm and space. Twitter, basically. On Twitter, the progressive Congress people sometimes tweet slightly, you know, negative things about Democratic leadership. But that's it. That's like nothing has actually happened in the real world. Yeah. And that's just that's too much. Like even the tweets, they can't even handle a few hot tweets, the subtweets even not even not even direct subliminals, subliminals they're complaining about. Yeah. By the way, I just want to read, Sparky said, hi, Katie, great to see you. Hey, Kate, thank you, Sparky. And Brian Frederick says, John Bolton finally admitting his role in coups, which I think is a great segue to this next clip that we're going to look at. It's one of our favorites, one of our faves, John Bolton. To anathematize the rest of the Republican Party, and that's unacceptable. I do want to ask a follow-up. Um, when we were talking about what is capable, what you need to do to be able to plan a coup, and you, you cited your expertise having planned coups. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but... Uh, Successful coups? Well, I wrote about Venezuela in, uh, in the book, and uh, it, it turned out not to be successful. Not that we had all that much to do with it, but I saw what it took for an opposition to try and overturn an illegally elected president, and they failed. The notion that Donald Trump was half as competent as the Venezuelan opposition is laughable. But I think there's another. I feel like you're this other stuff you're not telling me, though. I think I'm sure there is. Uh, I think there's another point here that, that came out in the testimony that's not been stressed enough. Uh, testimony, uh, uh, deposition testimony by, I think his name was Donnell Harvin. I, I may have taken that down wrong. The, the chief of uh, intelligence and homeland security for the District of Columbia government, who said we were watching Twitter after Trump's tweet calling for the demonstration on right. January the 6th. We saw all of these implications, all of the concerns about the violence. I want to know where the rest of the government was, and I particularly want to know where members of Congress were. If this was so evident at the time, why there wasn't more security on the Hill long before the, the demonstrators ever turned up? No, it's a good question. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people who just lived here and had been paying attention were aware that there was a real potential for violence. Yeah. Wow. 
If I Did It by John Bolton, Gavin Hill, I write. Throw back to the O.J. Simpson, Simpson book. Yeah, man, he just straight up. And it's just because he, he says it because he's like so arrogant. He's like, like uh, he, he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like Trump isn't smart enough to do a coup without me there. Like be, be clear. Let me be clear about that. If he were doing a coup, he wouldn't need me, which is of course a fair point because the only thing we're seeing from, I don't know how much uh, you've been covering the one six thing, but I still am waiting for like the smoking gun. Uh, I think the last update I heard was that somehow Trump had leaped from the backseat of the giant stretch like, uh, was it, it's not, is it a suburban, maybe a stretch expedition or something and was g- trying to grab the steering wheel. And this was the coup. I'm like, even as botched as U.S. coups generally are, they're never that botched. Like you, if you can't even get your driver to drive you to the right place, you're not doing a coup, especially for the United States of America. What was supposed to happen the next day? Who was going to be running the government the next day? Who was going to be doing Congress and sending all this stuff the next day? Usually have those answers with a coup. And it's the answer is like the military is uh, doing all of that. Um, and they're keeping everybody lying at gunpoint. I don't think the squad that Trump assembled really could have uh, held, uh, you know, the U.S. government in its grasp for very long, especially without Bolton uh, there doing the planning. Yeah. Bolton's a guy you want to call in. I mean, although he didn't even, he wasn't even successful in Venezuela, but to be fair, it sounded like they kind of phoned it in. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. They're not like, we're even our best are not that great at doing coups. So it's strange how much time has been spent on this idea that uh, the United States was taking over that easily. Like if it were that easy, someone else would have already done it. And before Trump. Yeah. Poor Trump. He must have low self-esteem. <laughs> Well, Leslie, any final thoughts? So happy that you joined us and look at some clips. Anything else you want to talk about? The Vince McMahon story. Tell us. So huge, huge story. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, but you've probably heard about this. It's been reported in the Wall Street Journal uh, that these that over the past uh, few years, Vince McMahon has paid out over $14 million uh in NDAs uh, to employ WWE, uh, not employees like uh, necessarily because WWE wrestlers aren't employees, but WWE, you know, talent, you know, workers in order to um, cover up sexual indiscretions, including what are called a consensual affair, you know, even though it was with the underling up to sexual assault, uh, uh, alleged sexual assault on a former WWE wrestler. Um, and this is all coming out and is making some waves, but Vince, Vince McMahon is still running the company. He has stepped down from the, his role as CEO uh, a couple of weeks ago when the first allegations came out, um, but he's still in charge. He still like appears on the TV show. And it, the reason this he can still be so brazen with this is because WWE has deals with NBC, they have deals with uh, Disney. Uh, they have deals with Fox. Uh, there are huge, huge uh, mega corporation with huge ties to all these other media corporations. So that's why, like CNN, is one of the only 
outlets that actually were talking about this on TV because CNN owned by Time Warner, hey, they have their own competitive uh, wrestling league. So they're not uh, in bed with the WWE. So they're actually talking about it, even though uh, and it was announced that Netflix was canceling what was going to be a positive documentary on Vince McMahon that they were doing in conjunction with WWE. So imagine th these guys, and it was almost uh, finished. Um, Bill Simmons from, uh, he worked for ESPN for a long while. And he's done a ton of TV and documentaries. He was working with the WWE to do a biography on the WWE and Vince McMahon until this ultra positive story about him. And he's surprised, I guess, by these revelations of sexual harassment, sexual assault by Vince McMahon. And my question is, like, what did you find out when you were shooting the documentary about Vince if you didn't find this out? What was that documentary actually going to be? And, of course, we all know it was just going to be for show the narrative that uh, Vince McMahon wants to tell. You want to show a clip? We have a clip. Do you want to show oh, it? Yes, yes. The CNN clip is uh, pretty good. Yes. To the art of the follow-up, the need for follow-up stories. Three weeks ago, Vince McMahon stepped down as WWE CEO following allegations of sexual misconduct. It turns out now there is a lot more to the story. The Wall Street Journal breaking the news this week that McMahon uh, paid uh, hush money, $12 million to women who had uh, made allegations against him. $12 million in payouts. Uh, that's a big scoop from the Wall Street Journal. Now there's probably more to come. There's an investigation that McMahon has pledged to cooperate with. Uh, but it's a really important example of why there's needs to be digging by journalists to get to the fuller story. Let me bring back Claire Atkinson, Lauren Hirsch, and Philip Bump for more on all this. Claire, the WWE is a big media company. Uh, people sometimes don't appreciate how important it is in the media firmament. It it's a content creation machine. Uh, what do you think are the, uh, the implications of this revelation about McMahon? Yeah, you'd have to wonder whether all of the WWE partners, whether it's Disney, whether it's Peacock, whether it's Fox... Uh, and Netflix also had a, a biopic of Vince in the works, which I read is now cancelled. Like, what are they thinking? Are they thinking that this is just going to go away? There were, mm. you know, the Wall Street Journal is already on its second story about uh, Vince McMahon coercing a colleague into sex and then having to uh, pay another couple of million dollars um, to the lady. And then she exited. Um, Not I a think, colleague, employee. You know, the question is, d does anybody care? This is a brand that operates in the wrestling ring. Oh, gosh, that's cynical. It's all about bad behavior, this right? This is a Me this Too is, story. In 2017, this, this would have been breaking news headlines. Absolutely, news. absolutely. So yeah. the silence is pretty deafening. Mm. Um, you also got to wonder, like, what exactly is this investigation that the board is doing? The board is made up of Vince McMahon's daughter, Stephanie McMahon, mm. her husband, and also Erica Nardini, who's the CEO of Barstool Sports. Mm. So you kind of wonder, like, where this is really going. Stephanie was yucking it up at the oh, UFC okay. last so weekend you're, with you're, her dad. Gotta, I appreciate the cynical. You're being a realist. Not a cynical, but you're being a realist. I'm Let asking me. the questions. Yeah, so that's the other twist. Even though Vince has stepped down nominally as CEO, his replacement was his own daughter. OK, who's been his right hand man for a very, very uh, right hand or woman, I should right say. Right hand for, woman, Leslie. Wow. Yeah, for a very, very long time. Another person embroiled in the scandal is head of talent relations, John Laurinaitis, who we found out with these recent revelations. Head of talent relations, he's basically the go-between between the wrestlers and the creative team who basically 
decide the fate of whether you work or not, whether you're going to be a wrestler or not, whether you're going to be on TV or not. And he had had a sexual relationship with a wrestler. This was discovered. He was fired for it. They paid out a million. And then a few years later, WWE hired him back into the same role, the same role. And then he did it again. In fact, it was even worse. Vince McMahon literally sent a woman that he had hired basically he basically paid her to have sex and be an employee. He hired her as a paralegal, but the Wall Street Journal revealed that was just where she was put because Vince McMahon met her at his condo and wanted to pay her to be, I, I don't know what, what a non-offensive term you could be, but someone at the office he could sleep with. And then when John Lars Nias came back to WWE, Vince McMahon sent this woman to his department so that he could um, take up with her as well. And let me tell you, everything I'm saying right now, this is stuff that's been rumored about, about and known and talked about in wrestling for years and years and years before all these big WE deals were signed, before that they planned on doing this documentary series. And if you dig deeper into the history of WWE, especially in the 90s, the original controversy that they had, most people remember the steroids trial and that controversy. But there, there were other controversy at the same time. For example, Rita Chatterton, the first female referee, accused Vince McMahon on national TV of sexually assaulting her on the Donahue show. She used the word rape. They bleeped it out. That was on national TV. Never been disputed, never been disproven. And then, and after these re revelations came out, a wrestler came out and, and corroborated her story. There was the something called the Ring Boy scandal, which is as big as Epstein. There was an announcer who worked for the WWE named Mel Phillips who sexually abused several boys across the country at WWE events. And we now know that there is videotape of this. The FBI literally has videotape of sexual abuse happening at WWE events, which Vince denied. Vince said he never knew anything was going on, even though at one point he, his father had fired this Mel Phillips for being caught having sex with an 11-year-old in a car in the parking lot at WWE show. Linda and Vince McMahon hired him back a few years ago, but they told him to cut it out. They told him to cut it out. And you can hear commentary for in WWE shows, the actual shows that they uh, they show referencing some of the abuse happening. There was a, a guy named Ronnie Garvin who was uh, caught twice on camera. There are wrestlers who, alive today saying they saw him uh, assaulting someone in the locker room, assaulting male wrestlers in the locker room. And like this whole story is as big as Epstein, Sandusky, Weinstein, all put together is is so deep and all of this stuff is like out there this is some of this has been on tv cnn larry king what you can see clips of larry king grilling vince mcmahon about sexual abusers in his locker room and then a few years later once wb becomes a publicly traded company larry king is invited vince mcmahon on and he's calling him his friend and saying this show is a tribute to the wb it's shocking stuff it's all out there and sadly Aside from the Wall Street Journal reports, no one's really diving in to any of this other stuff. And I want to say all that stuff about Mel Phillips, uh, Terry Garvin, uh, Pat Patterson, all that stuff is stuff that wrestlers say Vince 100% knew about. Pat Patterson was accused of uh, sexually harassing uh, at least a half dozen 
wrestlers over his time. And Vince McMahon, uh, he was he he stepped down in the early '90s, but he came back, and Vince McMahon basically kept him on until he passed away. Even though he was known, like so many wrestlers came forward and said he did this stuff. And this is stuff that you can find on YouTube. Anybody can find. And certainly any of the companies working with WB, certainly Disney could find it. Certainly Netflix could could find it. I want to mention Bloomhouse. They're supposed to be doing a TV show with about Vince McMahon and the steroid trial uh, working with WWE. So like all these media conglomerates, they're so tied in with WWE that they're, and they just pretend none of this is happening. But if this was anything else, anyone else, Vince McMahon would be like the number one news story and he would be gone. And basically, and his daughter would be gone and his lackeys would be gone too. It's just a completely horrific story that no one really has dot really uh, put all together. Well, thank you, Leslie. It sounds like you just put it all together. I'm trying. I'm trying. Watch my Twitter feed. I'm writing a couple of articles about it. Oh, great. I feel like we were just blessed with the preview of it. All of that is allegedly, but I can't. I can document it. allegedly. I do have to mention Vince McMahon uh, threatened to sue Talking Points Memo and anyone else who mentioned the Rhea Chatterton story. Um, so that there is that they're extremely litigious. Allegedly, hey, I'm a comedian. I have a comedy podcast. Or if there's a big bleep or something, you know, some kind of crossfade, you're going to know what happened. We have to cut that out. But this is all Leslie. This is all comedy. Yes. It's not real. It's like wrestling. Exactly, exactly. All no. kayfabe. That's the word. All kayfabe, yeah. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for joining. It's always a pleasure to have you. And definitely come back. Let's do this again. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Bye, Leslie. All right, guys, we we are just beginning. We've only just begun. That was so great. And I'm so excited to bring on our next guest. We're going to bring on two wonderful guests. Chip Gibbons, who is policy director of Defending Rights and Dissent, where he has advised multiple congressional offices on reforming the Espionage Act. He covered the legal proceedings against Julian Assange and Daniel Hale as a correspondent for Jacobin. He's currently working on a book on the history of the FBI for Verso. Welcome, Chip. Hello. Thank you so much. Uh, Long time listener, first time caller. Well, thank you for joining us. We're honored to have you. And also joining us is Matthew Ho, who is a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy. He is a 100% disabled Marine combat veteran. And in 2009, he resigned his position with the State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the escalation of the war. He's a candidate with the Green Party to represent North Carolina in the U.S. Senate in 2022. So welcome, Matthew. Hey, Katie. Thanks for having me on. And Chip, it's good to see you again, my friend. It's always good to see you again, Matthew. It's like a reunion, yeah. (laughs) Well, I wanted to have you on, Matthew, we're going to talk more about your campaign, but I wanted to have you both on to talk about the latest happenings around Julian Assange. So Chip, could you update us about what's happening? Sure. So, um... A couple of weeks ago, Pretty Patel gave the extradition order. It's not the end of Julian's legal proceedings in, in the UK. He still has more, more appeals ahead of him. Um, and today we saw that AMLO was in uh, Washington. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, for people don't know, the president of Mexico. Yeah. Spanish pronunciation is much better than mine. Um, was in Washington today. And he uh, came on the way here. He said he was going to tell Biden that if he did not um, end the persecution of Assange, that he was going to tell us to give the statute of liberty back to France. Um, and this is one of a number of international, one of the most high-level international 
elected officials who have come out against what the U.S. is doing, a number of members of the German parliament, including a human rights spokesperson for the ruling Social Democratic Party, has called for Assange to be a free, the German parliament petition committee, and not an expert on German government, has um, issued a petition condemning the psychological torture of Assange. And as we speak right now, the House Rules Committee is meeting to discuss amendments. There's about 1,200 amendments proposed to the National Defense Authorization Act, which is a big giveaway to the military industrial complex. But Representative Tlaib and Representative Omar are really called the pardon of Daniel Hale, called the Assange prosecution insensible, have put forward an amendment to the NGA that if it is approved by the rules committee, we don't think they're going to because democratic leadership is never going to let this on the floor, would dramatically amend the Espionage Act so that whistleblowers charged under it would have a chance of a fair trial. So a Dan Ellsberg or a Daniel Hale or a Snowden could actually defend themselves because the way the Espionage Act works right now, if you are a government employee, you sign a non-disclosure agreement, you agree that you ever give classified information, uh, you know, you acknowledge the sky will fall. So the statute says if you have reason to believe this would harm U.S. national security. So if you give information to a journalist, you were told this would cause bad things, you did it, uh, that's all the government has to prove. So they bar you from talking about um, what you explained to why. The prosecutors had Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower, barred from, and these are their words, uh, talking about his good motives. His big said, no, you can't mention your good motives in court. Or, or even what they're revealing. I mean, think about someone like Snowden. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has said the programs he revealed were illegal and, un, and likely unconstitutional. I mean, imagine you're on a jury, Kate, and they're like, oh, we have a, an espionage defendant here. There you go. Who's he spying for China, Russia, Al-Qaeda? No, he gave information to a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. As a result, Congress changed the law, and the court found it to be illegal and acknowledged that had he not done so, they could not have ruled on it. But what this would require is it would actually have to prove specific intent to harm national security, no more of this reason to believe stuff. It also would give an affirmative right for someone charged under the Espionage Act to testify for why they made their disclosure. Dan Ellsberg famously was asked by his attorney, a very famous radical attorney, Leonard Putin, why did you copy the Pentagon Papers? and the judge stopped him, that would no longer be the case. And it would create an affirmative public interest defense. And on top of that, it would amend who the Espionage Act would apply to. So certain provisions would only apply to those who have a duty to protect classified information, a government official signed a non-disclosure agreement. Because right now it just says whoever. And it's very broad. When I was in law school, when the professor started talking about some story he wrote in the Washington Post, I think it was about how Bush had authorized assassination of a Hezbollah guy. And this young woman in my class who was an intern at the, or the NSA general counsel raised her hand and let him know that just because it was in the Washington Post, it was still classified and he was breaking the law by telling. I'm sure she went very far at the NSA. I'm sure she had a very successful career. And it would change it so... It would only apply to those that have duty to classified information in most of the um, parts of the bill. And another one, the foreign agent, it would apply to a foreign agent of a foreign government 
international terrorist organization or proliferator of nuclear weapons that was majority non-U.S. persons. I mean, if the U.S. government can prove in a court that you obtained classified information on behalf of nuclear weapons proliferators with the intent to harm international security, you probably have done something that constitutes espionage, but no more of this putting journalists and whistleblowers on trial. So this is a huge breakthrough, not just for Assange, and I realize this Rules Committee is going to kill it, and I'm not naive, but it's a huge breakthrough for, for whistleblowers generally, because the issue of the Espionage Act is, is bigger than the scientists. It's just the latest attack on it. I mean, for 105 years, uh, the Espionage Act has cast a real shadow under on the First Amendment. It's one of the most repressive laws in U.S. history. It's involved in jailing Eugene Debs. It's expanded during the McCarthy era, Red Scare. It's, you know, involved in silencing Daniel Ellsberg. It's involved in silencing all these people during the war on terror, like John Karyanku, like Edward Snowden, like Chelsea Manning, and now they're gone for, for journalists. So it's exciting that there are two members of Congress who are willing to put this forward as an NDAA. I mean, there should be, I think there's 500 members. A lot of people are in Congress. There should be, you know, hundreds of members of Congress who are, who are sponsoring this. And I am a little bit disappointed that some of the Republicans have spoken out on Stone and cases are not joining this. You know, it's just two members of the squad, but it is inspiring, you know, that there are two people who are willing to take this stand. Yeah. Shout out to Tlaib and Ilan Omar. And Matthew, as someone who is a Marine and people like you are frequently weaponized and, you know, it's for the sake of people like you that Assange has to be punished. So the argument goes, what's your response to that? That he put the lives of servicemen and women at risk. Oh, he didn't. And we know that. And thanks for having me here, Katie. You know, yeah, he didn't. And neither did Chelsea Manning. And none of these leaks have ever put anyone in danger. And we know that because the U.S. government has gone into court after having generals in charge of teams of dozens and dozens of people combing through every record they could find to try and show that somehow Snowden or Manning or, or Assange or Kiriako or whoever did something to put somebody's life in jeopardy, and the U.S. government has never been able to show that. So they have it. And what they have shown, though, all these brave whistleblowers, these men and women, has that the U.S. government has been using classification to hide its crimes. You know, Neil Sheehan, who was a, a New York Times journalist and covered the Vietnam Wars, and he wrote a book called uh, A Bright Shining Lie, which when people ask me, what book should I read to understand the Iraq and Afghan wars? I always refer to them the two Vietnam books, A Bright Shining Lie and Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest. But Sheehan covered the Pentagon Papers, which Chip had brought up. And what Sheehan said after he was through all that, after that was all done, what he said he learned was that classification government secrets. They're not meant to keep the American public safe from some external enemy. It's meant to keep the American government safe from the American people. And that's the reality of our classified programs, our secrets, you know, and the way that they go after these whistleblowers, these brave men and women, because they've dared to expose like these ugly truths about the crimes that our government commits. Tip, what can people do to support Assange? I think a big thing you can do to support Assange is to write to your member of Congress and ask them to speak out. I mean, there are bipartisan groups in, in um, parliaments across Europe, across Latin America, across Australia. You know, in the U.S., Omar is called the Prosecution and Defense Bill. 
Kahana has criticized it, and Thomas Massey has also, he had a tweet recently, I requested two pardons after January 6th, one for Snowden, one for Assange. I would say those are the three that are most serious. I know there are some other um, Republican types who have made tweets that I, I don't take as seriously, um, but it, it should be all of them. I mean, all, particularly in the progressive caucus, I mean, every CPC member needs to be speaking out. Every Republican who claims they're a libertarian needs to be speaking out. Everybody who values press freedom, everybody who's expressed concern about drone strikes, everybody who's concerned about the because they should be speaking out. Uh, at the Defending Rights and Dissent website, rightsanddissent.org, there are tools for which you can take action um, around both the amendment, although that probably is going to be dead sometime tonight, or just telling your congressperson to speak out to a call for the charges to be dropped against Julian Assange and for a pardon for Dan Duncan, the drunk whistleblower who is currently in a communications management unit in this country, Guantanamo North, as, as they call it. Well, thank you so much, Chip. Everyone follow Chip's work and thank you for stopping by and giving us an update. Of course. Good to see you. Thanks. Bye. Okay, guys. Matthew, so excited to talk to you about your campaign for Senate. I want to talk to you about so many other things like war, what made you want to run in the first place, but this scandal, let's dig into that first. Can you tell people about the ways that you're facing a kind of double-pronged battle from both the Board of Elections and the National Democratic Institution, Behemoth? Yeah, yeah. I, I prefer Leviathan, uh, but Behemoth is certainly, um, you know. But yeah, thanks for this opportunity, Katie. So in order for the North Carolina Green Party to get on the ballot, we needed to collect 13,865 signatures. We collected more than 22,500 signatures, met all the deadlines, everything procedurally correct. As a Green Party candidate, in order to get the Green Party recognized as a political party in North Carolina. And then once we're recognized as a political party, then we can run candidates, right? So there's a whole process you go through where you go out there, you get the signatures, you turn them into the counties. The counties verify them. And then on June 1st, we had to turn in all our verified signatures to the state. We needed 13,865. We got uh, 15,953 verified signatures. Uh, so we were over by 2,100. Uh, we turn them into the state on, the, on, Ju on June 1st. The state has until July 1st to certify us as a political party. That July 1st date is important because not only does our certification have to occur by then, but we also have to have a nominating convention. We have to get our folks registered as Greens, and then our candidates have to go and file for candidacy. None of that can happen until we're certified, and it all has to be done by July 1st. So this just sets it up to show how much bad faith there was here on the state's part because they don't schedule a certification meeting until June 30th. And that means if they had certified us, we would have had less than a day to get all those other things done. But anyway, again, we, we, we had 2,100 more verified signatures than we, we needed over the 30 days that the state held on to those signatures without certifying them. Um, they investigated, as far as we know, about 200 signatures. We were never given any specifics, never told what the issues are, never said this is fraud, this is wrongdoing. And we cooperated with them fully. And so we go on the certification hearing on June 30th, and the state says, and these those 200 signatures never counted towards our total anyway. 
they were part of the signatures that were not validated. And you always have signatures in a petition process that are not validated. Across the country, it's about a 75% validation rate. This goes over and over and over again. Hundreds of petition drives, and you always have about every, roughly out of every four signatures you collect, only three are going to count. So nothing out of the usual here to have signatures that didn't count. But what they say is because there are these irregularities, which again, they never define, they never say this is wrongdoing over 30 days. They say because there are these 200 or so or however many, that's undefined as well, signatures, there could be more. And because there could be more, that means we need to investigate further. But because tomorrow is the deadline, we don't have time to investigate, so we're not going to certify you. And that was it. We were denied certification. Uh, I mean, and there are multiple levels to that as well. We can go into deeper if you'd like, as well as the presence of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee through all this and the Mark Elias law firm, the Elias Law Group. If people aren't familiar with Mark Elias, he's arguably the Democrats' most prominent attorney. Uh, the Elias Law Group bills itself as the biggest and strongest Democratic law firm in the country. Uh, they came down here a few weeks ago. Uh, so we had that as well with the State Board of Elections. And that's why you're correct to say we are in a two-front fight. You tweeted out some text that you got. I thought that this would be interesting. So here you tweeted out, I just received this text. This is the, what is this? The Democratic- Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, yep. Attempting to subvert North Carolina's Green Party successful positioning for ballot access. They are proving that Dems nor GOP care for democracy, only maintaining power. Please help us fight back. And here's what, the text said, says, hi, Matthew, my name's Drew, and we're texting you because your name was listed on a petition submitted to help place the Green Party and its candidates on the North Carolina ballot in 2022 and 2024. We just want to confirm whether you signed this petition. And then they give you four options to respond with. One, yes, I did sign. Two, no, I did not sign. Three, not sure. Four, wrong number. And then they give you the option to reply, stop, to end. And you write number one, which is, again, you're saying that you were intentionally signed, you had intentionally signed that petition. And then they write back, thank you for confirming. If the Green Party is on the ballot, we'll give Republicans a huge advantage that will help them win in North Carolina in 2022 and 2024. In past elections, we've seen that the Green Party takes votes away from Democrats, which helps Republicans win. With abortion rights, in the balance, we can't afford to give Republicans more of an advantage. Are you interested in asking the elections board to have your name removed from this petition? So can you explain what was going on there? Yeah. So again, this is parallel to what we're dealing with the state board of elections, but there's obviously collusion between the partisan state board of elections, which is controlled by the Democrats because the Democrats have power in North Carolina through the governor's office. So on the actual board of the state board elections, there are three Democrats and two Republicans. And when they denied a certification, it was an overtly, brazenly partisan process. Three Democrats voted against, two Republicans for. Uh, you know, and of course, if I was a conservative candidate, it would have been the opposite. I mean, so that that's just it just shows that the two party system is corrupt, undemocratic and harmful. This is the parallel effort by the Elias Law, Law Group. So about a few weeks, about three weeks ago, we get we found out the Elias Law Firm was down here from D.C. operating about two and a half weeks ago. We was started the smell of sulfur. In the it, air? It, 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 it was that brimstone. There was a bit of you could see it in the, you know, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. But really, the the the, the stench of the corruption. Uh, it, it was 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 clear. I mean, you could see this, and this is why we were notified of it by a journalist. 
uh, because they saw, because I mean, not to get too into the weeds in this, but one of the things about these petitions are that they're public records. And when we were out there gathering these signatures, we had an obligation not to use those signatures and that information for anything other than the purpose of getting on the ballot. So I can't take those 22,500 signatures we collected, all the addresses and names, everything else, and then use it for my campaign. But here's the Elias Law Group. They come down, they get that public record right away, and then they're able to weaponize it, if you will, to steal the word you just used, right, in order for political purposes. But we, we, we get told by people that, hey, someone called me and said, can you remove, do you, they wanted me to remove my name from the petition. And then we start hearing from people saying, you guys called me and asked me to remove, right? And it's like, what is going on? Let's, let's play that. Yeah. Can we play that? I cut you off because I wanted us to show instead of tell what you right. were just talking about. Did you want to finish your point before we play? No, this? no, because the, the audio the audio explains it all. it all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Brad, if we could show the audio. So, this is someone who is from the Green Party, right? Who right, recorded right. this phone call. You're calling to confirm whether or not I signed a petition. Mass, who are you calling with? No response. What organization? Oh, is this is this the Green Party? Yes. You're with the Green Party? Yes, and we have you listed as wanting to get the candidates on the North Carolina ballot. Did you sign that petition? So, so you are calling as a representative of the Green Party? As a volunteer, yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I did sign it. <laughs> okay, and would you say you strongly support it or just somewhat support it? I mean, I don't think I'd sign something unless I strongly su support it. Okay. Well, thank you for confirming animal participation in elections is important. If the Green Party is on the ballot, it will take votes away from Democrats, giving Republicans a huge advantage. It will help them win North Carolina in 2022 and 2024. There's far too much at stake to let this happen. Are you interested in asking to have your name removed from this petition or leave it as is? I'm confused. So if you're with the Green Party, why are you asking to remove? Are you at, I'm sorry? <laughs> yes, I totally have. So that's interesting. That must be like a self-loathing member of the Green Party or something, trying to understand the universe in which someone from the Green Party would be calling someone else to encourage them to take their name off of a petition, which is getting the Green Party on the ballot. Right. You know, it, um, what they were doing is, is sometimes they would say they're from the Democratic Party. Other times they would, would say, I'm not allowed to say where I'm calling from. And then sometimes they would say they're calling from the Green Party. When they start going door to door and going to people's homes, they actually were saying they're from either the Secretary of State's office or the State Board of Elections. Um, I mean, so it was a deliberate uh, effort to mislead people, to lie in order to confuse them, in order to trick them, in order to bully them into removing their names from the petition. And, you know, they only got about 140 out of 16,000 or so people to remove their names. And how many of those did it because they actually thought we were calling? I don't know. But, you know, I mean, that that's what we were dealing with in parallel to this fight with the state. Right. And, and, and you have this type of, um, you know, again, it's deliberately lying to people in order to achieve their objective to keep because what they're threatened by, Katie, is really two things. It's, it's not me. It's not the Green Party. They're threatened by one, the fact that our people went out there and they met a wave of enthusiasm to do something different, to build something, to, to have a different option electorally. And that's why we did so well with our petitions. And on the other side of that, then, is what they're really threatened by is this idea that on the ballot in November, 
is going to be a party that represents working families, that people who are not represented otherwise will have representation. And what that means is that things like single payer, affordable housing, living wage, uh, real action on the climate, ending the war on drugs, those things that are very dangerous to the profits of the biggest donors of the Democrats or Republicans will be on the ballot. If we're not on the ballot, those things aren't on the ballot. Right. So this is there. And this is why they work so hard to keep us off, because, you know, th this duopoly, the foundation of it is the money. And if the money is threatened, that's why they become so vicious and will do anything, including uh, illegality, to keep people off the ballot. And the whole thing, again, is rotten. Uh, somebody on Twitter said to me the other day, someone from overseas said, he said, and this really kind of captures it. You're telling me, he says, that in the U.S., in order for a political party or a candidate to get on the ballot, the other two political parties have to approve him or her? Are you kidding me? Is that real? And I said, yeah, that's actually how it works. Talk about that. What is it? Foxes guarding the hen house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I want to show another video that we have. You could set this one up. This is with the Green Party lawyer and someone from the North Carolina Board of Elections. Right. This is, the, this is our attorney, Oliver Hall, with the Center for Competitive Democracy and the chair of the State Board of Elections, Damon Sarkasta. You know, again, the argument the State Board of Elections had at the certification hearing was that there could be more fraud. Again, they provide no specifics, no details. They don't show us any evidence. We're allowed no opportunity to engage with them. No one from the State Board engages with us during this, this hearing. You know, never ask us any questions about what happened. And uh, so as they're getting to the point where they're not going to certify us, our attorney is able to ask a question. He's out to ask one question throughout this whole hearing. And he says, uh, as you'll see, he'll say, does anything you're talking about have to do with our verified signatures? So the signatures that count towards us getting on the ballot, does anything? And you'll, you'll see the response from the chair of the State Board of Elections here. I would like to, and I'm hopeful that... Uh, we can get to the bottom of this, and it would be my desire, personal desire, uh, to to see this new party on the ballot. But given what it's given, given what's what's in front of us today, I can't, in good conscience, vote to certify today. So I would like to 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 wait, give our staff enough time to go through this process. If if there's a motion to uh, vote on this today, I will be voting no. Mr. Chairman, may I be recognized? Yeah, this Mr. Hall, let's make it brief, though, please. Well, thank you. Um, is there any question as to the validity of the 15,953 signatures that have been validated by state county boards of elections? Uh, Mr. Hall, I don't want to get into the details of a criminal investigation, but I have questions uh, sufficient uh, in number to be not willing to vote for certification today. Well, Mr. Chairman, I asked the question because the board is effectively presuming that there is some question as to the validity of those signatures by delaying the certification and possibly rejecting the certification of the Green Party petitions. And um, if there is some presumption here that is operative, the presumption ought to be that validated signatures are valid unless there is some basis for considering them invalid or, or at least subject to further investigation. So again, the question is, is there any basis for considering or, or, or questioning the validity of any one of those 15,953 validated signatures? 
and I will thank you for your comments to the board. I will stand by my earlier assertion and I will ask any other board members if they have questions. Mr. Chairman, you have not answered the question. You are now- uh, Mr. Hall, you're out of order, sir. Go ahead and mute Mr. Hall, please. Um, I'll ask the board members if they have any other questions for staff. Yeah, and that was the extent of our due process. Um, that, that was, you know, you see that smugness there, the arrogance of power. Um, you know, that's what we encountered, that this, this attitude of we don't like it, so we're not gonna do it. And what are you going to do about it? Uh, you know, another important point in that is he calls it a criminal investigation. It is not a criminal investigation. It was not, you know, at that point, it was not a criminal investigation. They keep throwing that out there. There's no criminal investigation that we've been notified about or told about, but they're using that to smear us, right? So then the media runs with North Carolina Green Party under criminal investigation probe, which is not true. I mean, so, you know, you have this on multiple levels where, and they're very good at it. I mean, they're very effective at it. This is uh, tying us up. It caused us to meet, miss the July 1st deadline. We run into a ballot printing deadline in mid-August and it exhausts us. We're a grassroots campaign. I don't have a staff of a hundred people. You know, we've got limited money and we're spending all our time and effort on this. And my, you know, I mean, we're not able to campaign. Uh, we're out here, you know, when I get a chance to talk to people, it's, you know, hey, Mr. Ho, when did you stop committing fraud? You know, I mean, so the whole narrative is structured around this. Uh, you know, it, so it is. It, it, it's very um, insidious. It's very nefarious, but it's also very effective. And that's why they do it. Some people have asked in the chats, you've reached out to Ralph Nader. Yes, of course, because Ralph is, you know, and, and this, so this guy, Mark Elias with the Elias Law Group, if people are not familiar, he was John Kerry's general counsel in 2004. And this is where a lot of this type of stuff, this suppression of third party and independent candidates really becomes established into almost like, a, you know, there's an SOP for it. You know, uh, the Green Party made the ballot. Let's pull out our pull out our, our guidebook and go through it and follow the steps. This is where a lot of that really gets established by Elias and his people when they're on a John Kerry campaign against Ralph Nader and the Green Party in 2004. I mean, hey, look, um, what we're up against here, you know, this David and Goliath fight, it's a good fight and it's a fight that we want to have. It's a fight I'm excited for and it's a fight that we need support in. But again, it just proves our point, you know, that it just 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 shows the, 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 the corruption that propagates and sustains this deadly status quo. You know, I, I was, uh, you know, you subjected us to those CNN and MSNBC clips and I've said it before. Whenever I see something like that, I'm just reminded the best decision I've made in eight years is to get rid of cable TV. You know, I mean, whenever I see something like that, but this idea that, you know, and, and, and Leslie was talking about that, that the White House is fed up with the demands from the left, right? You know, and, and what people are, are, are surviving on are scraps from our government. And that's what the Democrats run on is basically like, if you don't like us, then you're not gonna like the Republicans. So be happy with the scraps we give you. That's literally, that, that's what it is. And meanwhile, we've had this deadly status quo where people are dying, suffering, living lives of poverty because of very clear, deliberate government policies that have uh, caused everything to be squeezed to the top, which has led to ruin for tens of millions of American families and communities. Not to mention, as you know, all too well, the blowback abroad. Right. You know, we say I'm a member of Veterans for Peace and have been and very proudly so. And, and uh, you know, that's what we say. We say the wars overseas are mirrors of the wars here at home. 
right? So if you, you understand that the United States has the biggest prison system in the world, you understand why the U.S. also has a thousand military bases abroad, right? You understand the world world's largest arms exporter, and we have more guns than people here. None of that is coincidence, you know? And if you look at what occurs in the wars and then say, look at what occurs with the war on drugs or that crime against humanity at the border, you see the linkages. And I had a conversation a few weeks ago with some people from Venezuela. And you can cl see clearly that type of mirroring in the sanctions, where the sanctions overseas, they're mirrored here in our economic policies. What's the difference between sanctions against Venezuela that kill people because they can't get the medicine they need and a for-profit healthcare system that demands that people pay in order to get the money they need? It's both about, both sanctions abroad and our economic policies here both mean that we're squeezing the money to the top, and that's the purpose. And so we see that mirror continuously, both in war, and this is why we say we're up against the parties of war and Wall Street. So what's next moving forward? How are you fighting against this now? Yeah, we. Uh, I, I can't get into the details of it, unfortunately. Uh, I wish I could. It's all lawyer stuff, you know. But um, we are, look, if anyone thought that we were not going to, fight this. We weren't going to take it on. If anyone thought that I was going to let what all our folks did over months to get us to this point, all our people who went out there from college kids to grandmas to make this happen, if I was going to let that go or let go what thousands and thousands of people requested through their petitions or the fact that why I'm doing this is because of people I love are suffering. I have way too many people I know who check their banking accounts before they go to the doctor, let alone the people I know, the overdose deaths and the people are losing their homes to corporations and the rents going up and, you know, that I was going to give up because the state board of elections said no. You know, let alone the people on my staff who are doing this for the same reason, the people part of our campaign, the people in the Green Party. So we're going to fight this. We're going to get our, our, our rightful spot on the ballot. And, uh, you know, we need people's help because, again, we are up against Leviathan or Behemoth or, you know, this edifice, however you want to describe it. But it is a real David and Goliath fight. Two fronts, as you said, Katie, both against the state and against the Democratic Party because they brought the Elias Law Group and the DSCC down here right away. They didn't wait. You know, so I was either threatened by what's happening here because there's no one in the bullpen past Mark Elias for these guys. So we are in a real battle here for the people that we love and the issues that will do something in order to make people's lives somewhat more livable than the suffering that they're going through right now. Because again, everything's for the parties of war on Wall Street. And speaking of Greens, Democrats, the duopoly, and supporting campaigns, I did see that you had tweeted out something about Jason Paul, who is it running as a Democrat, and I've had him on my show, and I think he's great. I've had him on, I've had Rebecca Parsons on, who's another woman who's running as a Democrat. And these people are very critical, and they have their own reasons for running as Democrats, which they've explained in terms of logistics, fundraising. But I guess I'm asking you to be totally transparent, because I'll get a lot of crap when I have people on who are running as Democrats. Why are you, I'm going to hide behind you, you're going to be my Green Party shield, but why are you, for instance, retweeting Jason Call? Oh, because, look, Jason had his reasons for going with the Democratic Party. Um, and I've, I've met, I've talked to Jason. Um, I actually didn't know he was running as a Democrat for quite a while because <laughs> he's so, right? But, you know, we're all getting to this point to, uh, and we're coming from different avenues, reason why I'm not a Democrat, well, I've never been a Democrat, but I've worked with the Democrats up in D.C. I was on a 501c4 
on the board of a pack. You know, I've seen what it's like. I've been in with the leadership of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. I've seen how cowardly those people are. And that's the experience that brings me here along with the, the people in my life. You know, that's why I'm doing this and then take in the, there's been no accountability for the wars that have ruined so many millions and millions of lives overseas, as well as millions of lives here at home. You know, and so where I come from with it is like, this is the only way I see forward. I think for those other folks, they have to give it a shot. They got to give it a chance. You know, there are practical reasons for doing it. You know, the fundraising, the logistics, the infrastructure that's there. I don't think that leads anywhere. I think you're running in a rigged primary. I don't think it's going to get you any place. And occasionally we get something good from, you know, Chip brought up what Alana Omar and Rashida Tlaib has have done. You know, that's like he said, it's going to die in committee. It's never going to go anywhere. But, you know, occasionally we get those nuggets, those scraps, if you will. And my thing is, we don't believe in the two party system. Why contribute to it then? You know, and for me, it's a three pronged thing. It's one, it's continuing to build a political effort that's part of a larger working family leftist movement that's subordinate to those interests and just one part of a larger body, you know, but then also too, it's this idea that in other parts of our history, we have seen where parties have put such pressure on the two existing corporate parties to cause them to, to you know, take over some of those issues. So I don't care how we get single payer healthcare. I don't care if Mitch McConnell does it for us, as long as we get it for our people, right? You know, and then the third thing is we keep running third party candidates, independent candidates in this first past the post system. We disrupt it so much that they have to change the system because it's it's being broken by continuous involvement of multiple parties, you know, and that will bring us to rank choice voting and eventually proportional representation. Maybe we get money out of politics, you know, but, but that's kind of like my three prongs of in doing this and why I'm doing it this way, as opposed to trying to change from within, because, you know, to change it from within, there's just too much money involved. There's too many established interests. It's rigged. Uh, it's just not possible. But you don't think that Jason or Rebecca are neoliberal shills? No, I do not. No, I do not. I, I believe, you know, people, look, like I said, we all come to this from our own experiences, our own paths. And I don't know what the circumstances are out there in terms of what their ballot access is like. They, they may have had no ability to do it. Look, I couldn't run as an independent here in North Carolina because, again, to get on the ballot as a party, we needed about 14,000 signatures in North Carolina because North Carolina hates independents more than it does third parties. I would have needed 83,000 signatures to get on the ballot to run as an independent U.S. senator, right? I mean, so in every state's different. Lisa Savage, who ran a couple of years ago for U.S. Senate in Maine, right? Yeah, she she had to run as an independent because to run as a Green was just prohibitive. She wasn't going to be able to make that ballot access requirement. So, uh, you know, I don't know. With Jason's case, it may simply be that running as an independent or a third party is just simply not an option because out there, the two parties have it locked up so tightly. I'm saying that partly because I think we need more I mean, there's there's so many lines that we shouldn't cross. There are like litmus tests, but I just think we need more unity. This is not about you. This is me talking to my audience and the left in general. Like there are times where we shouldn't have unity and then there are times where we should have unity. And I think give some people who have chosen themselves as critics of the Democratic Party, give them credit when they run as Democrats, as long as we know that they know what they're doing. I'll help you out, Katie, and, and say something about someone who's problematic, uh, you know, and left audiences. And I'll quote Jefferson and help you out here in, in solidarity with you, sister, you know, in a sense of like, I'll be problematic as well. And, uh, um, you know, but, but Jefferson in his first inaugural says, uh, you know, differences of a, 
opinion do not imply differences of principle. And we have to remember that. We have to, as we're working with people, because if we don't have trust, if we don't have ability to build relationships, forget it. You know, I talk about a political party as being one part of the body. And, you know, and what I mean is that there are other parts. There's mutual and community aid. There's labor organizing. There's direct action. There's, uh, you know, communication, media, things you do. You know, if we don't trust, if we don't build these relationships among all that, plus other parts, you know, we're just going to be... Um, you know, as, as uh, Matt Taibbi uh, said the other day, an irrelevant afterthought. And we have to remember that. And we have to, you know, have this strategic focus, a long-term focus, you know, to build to build on what's been done before, because I don't want to step on your toes. A lot of good people have done great things to get us to this point. And I know people are saying to what point, but it could be, you know, I mean, certainly we're, we have the infrastructure here in North Carolina to run a race like this because we have people who have been putting years of their lives to get us to this point. And we need to do the same around the country. And that's one of the important things about this campaign is trying not just to find more candidates, but to try and build people so that we have people who can be campaign managers, who can be treasurers, who can do all those other aspects of a campaign in order to provide a real challenge to the two-party system. And that has to be, again, integrated into that larger body. As someone who's an anti-war veteran, what are your thoughts on the war in Ukraine? I mean, I, I view the war in Ukraine as a very dirty war. Uh, you know, it's a war uh, for uh, fossil fuels and a larger part for overall commerce, as well as a megalomaniac battle between Washington, D.C., London and Moscow. Uh, there's no good sides in the war in, in Ukraine. The only good side are the people who are there suffering. I think it's it's we've reached a, a real low point, and say that is 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 really quite uh, something to say about our uh, ability to understand war overseas. Where in this war, if you try and understand it prior to February 2022, you're deemed uh, a, a heretic, uh, you're deemed a Putin sympathizer. To bring up anything about you know the coup in 2014, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's but also too the other part. This idea that we are somehow keeping the war in Ukraine separate from all our other wars, that somehow these people on the American side who are responsible for this are the same people that are responsible for Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, Le uh, Libya, et cetera, et cetera, right? You know, that somehow that this war has to be kept secret, uh, kept separate from that. Uh, you know, I mean, so we, this is, I think, um, the war that the United States Army wanted, the United States Air Force wanted as well. The Navy wants a war with China because how else do you how else do you justify fifteen billion dollar aircraft carriers, fifteen billion dollar submarines, uh, the next generation of bombers, the B twenty one are going to be two billion dollars a piece. You need Russia and China as enemies to justify that. But you know this war in Ukraine, in terms of what's the American involvement in that, like what are the, these 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 grand strategists like that criminal John Bolton, who you know I just I tweeted this earlier, but there's no prison deep and dark enough. For a person like that, there really isn't. For the ruin that and destruction he's brought to tens of millions of people, there's nothing. There's nothing deep and dark enough for a man like that. But um, you know, this idea in Ukraine, as far as I understand it, is that one, it's it's a money, it's a money pit. You know, uh, uh, Andrew Coburn just wrote about this today. It's just not the fifty-four million dollars. You know, half of which is, is is money that goes right to American military contractors. It's all the other weapon sales that are coming about because of this. You know, the Germans, the Poles, the Finns, whoever buying more F-35s because they have they're afraid of Russia now. I mean, so this is a, a just a, a a brilliant 
corporate giveaway. Uh, you know, but the idea though is that we're gonna um the United States is gonna catch Russia in this trap in Ukraine. So you keep pushing, you keep pushing it. This is, uh, look, trust me, the Russian invasion is illegal. It's a war crime. You know, it is the invasion and occupation of a sovereign nation. But the Americans have been pushing and pushing and Vladimir Putin's been pushing back. What do you, you know, look, in the, after the coup in 2014, he pushed back. He sent his people into Eastern Ukraine. He sent his people into Crimea. And the brilliant folks in the White House and the Pentagon, the State Department, CIA said, oh, we just have to push harder. And this is the result. But the idea is that Russia will be trapped in Ukraine. Russia will exhaust itself there. That exhaustion will cause discontent and the Russian government will fall. I, I, I think that's a, a, a fairy tale. I think it's, it's, it's a, the, the, the uh, you know, neoconservative wet dream of people like John Bolton. It will never occur. And I think what you're more than likely to have, I shouldn't say never, but what you're, what's more likely to occur as we're sacrificing Ukrainians continually in an endless war that makes a ton of money Right. Because even as the even, you know, my friend Mike Ferner says, he always reminds me, even losing wars make money. So even if the Ukrainians are losing, Ukrainians are losing, there's still money still being made. But I think it's much more likely that the Putin government doesn't fall, but the Zelensky government falls. And this is what, you know, going back a few months, all I would say about the war in Ukraine was this two things. I have no idea how it's going to end. No idea or what's going to happen. And the other part is the people responsible for this will never be held accountable. And this, this idea, you know, this understanding that nobody should be uh, 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 not aware of, not cognizant of, this idea that war is a breeding ground of unintended consequences, right? That, that war uh, is uncontrollable. And whether it be Vietnam and, and what happens in Cambodia, say, or Iraq or Afghanistan or in Syria with Al-Qaeda, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and then the Islamic State, you know, these Frankenstein monsters that appear. So for me, the, the, what I think is more likely is the Zelensky government falls, something else comes up, and this becomes something no one ever thought it would be. And the ruin is massive. And of course, the danger over all this is because you have people calling for armed intervention by the Americans and by NATO, uh, is that this escalates to the point where we are gone as a species. And, and that's not hyperbole. Uh, you know, the danger of nuclear warfare is incredibly real because remember, during the Cold War, both sides had plans to use nuclear weapons early in the conflict. Not when they're losing, but early in the conflict during the Cold War, both sides plan to use nuclear weapons. Both sides now have, uh, as they call, usable nuclear weapons. And there are both Americans and Russian generals who believe that you can fight and win a nuclear war. And of course, you have uh, both Russian and American politicians who are more than happy to embrace such uh, uh, lunacy. Any final words, thoughts? As I said, we're in its David versus Goliath fight. As Katie said, it's a two front battle that we're dealing here with both the, North, the state of North Carolina and the Democratic Party. And we need your help. So if you can donate, please donate and please encourage others to donate because we can't win without folks helping us out that way. Thank you so much, Matthew, and best of luck. Thank you, Katie, and thanks everyone for joining. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our 
listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordoba. See you next time.